18 through the end of the chapter. So 2 Timothy 1, verses 15 through 18. And would you stand as I read? You are aware that all who are in Asia turned away from me, among whom are Phygelus and Hermogenes. May the Lord grant mercy to the household of Onesiphorus, for he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. But when he arrived in Rome, he searched for me earnestly and found me. May the Lord grant him to find mercy from the Lord on that day. And you well know all the service he rendered at Ephesus. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we come asking for your help, acknowledging need, acknowledging where our thoughts have taken us all over the place this week and this day. Would you, by your power amongst us, give us a focus upon your word, Help us to see, help us to hear, and Holy Spirit, prepare our hearts that we might not just be hearers of the word, but doers of the word, that we might hear in faith, taking you at your word. And Father, I now pray that whatever proceeds from this mouth that is not of you would fall to the floor and remain unheard, for the grass withers and the flower fades But the word of our God endures forever. Lord Jesus, you said heaven and earth may pass away, but your word will never pass away. So God of glory, speak to us. Lord, speak. Our Father in heaven, speak. Your children are listening. Have mercy in the name of Christ. Amen. You may be seated. Throughout chapter 1, really since uh, Paul got through his thankfulness for Timothy, he has been encouraging and admonishing his young protege not to drop the baton. He says, you you haven't been given a spirit of fear, but you've been given a spirit of power. Verse 7, of love and self-control. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. There's a theme of chapter one. It is that do not be ashamed. Guard the gospel. And one of the ways that the gospel is and commitment to the gospel is eroded is through shame. It's, it's as, and you understand, like, I used this imagery in, uh, on Wednesday night, right? You're standing on the beach. We go to the beach every summer. You go and you stand. Your first thing you should do, right? You get your shoes off and you go and you get about an ankle deep, a couple inches deep in the water and the, the tide is coming in and out. The waves are going in and out. And if you stand there long enough, what happens? The sand begins to shift and go out from underneath your feet and either you can make the choice and and at that moment it's a delightful choice. Am I going to reposition or am I going to jump into the water? 
When Paul zeroes in for Timothy, here in his last letter, at the very end of his life, the Apostle Paul is telling Timothy, do not be ashamed of the gospel, nor of me, his prisoner. He recognizes that people give up on the gospel for many reasons, but people give up on the gospel for one prime reason, is for shame. As the culture, cultural winds shift, and we can now shift now from the first century to the 21st century, and we can see the cultural winds shift. And for some of you, you have gone in your lifetime, you've gone from where it seemed like everybody you knew was a Christian, everybody you knew at least showed up a handful of times a year to church, At the very least, they were CEO Christians, Christmas and Easter only, (laughs) to now you live in a day, and and, and back then it was socially not just accepted, it was socially expected that you would be a member of the church and that you would have some affiliation with the church, whether or not you actually believe the gospel or not. It seemed like in your bubble of a world, the values of Christianity, the the undergirding moral tenets upheld society. That might not have been your experience. It was not all of America's experience, but by and large, if you were around South Carolina, that was probably your experience. And now, we, in your lifetime, you've gone from that to where it is not socially expected. And in many circles, it's not even socially accepted. It is now costly. Not to go to church, necessarily. But for you to leave this place and to to show and to share Christ, it is costly. Now, I don't think anybody's going to come for your head anytime soon, like they did for Paul. But it's costly. Who are you to tell me there's only one way? How do you know that to be true? How do you know the Bible is it's just a random collection that was put together hundreds of years after Jesus, right? People say this kind of like, have you op- opened the book? Have you done anything? Anyways, let's not get into that subject, but... Where, where it is socially costly, and we can tell the stories. There were stories back then. There were stories in the first century, obviously. There are stories in the 1950s and 60s and 70s and 80s and 90s and 2000s. But it seems like there is an acceleration to it where we could say, look at the people that once affiliated with the church, or better said, they once affiliated with Jesus, and now they want no part of it. As the social expectation, as the cultural acceptance of being a Christ follower withers, you're going to see many more people drop out. And we're not talking about losing your salvation, but we're going to be talking about the purification of the church, honestly. But it wasn't something new. 
where people have a grand beginning and they kind of fizzle out and let go. We can tell the stories of recent celebrity pastors, Christian music artists who have vocally given up the faith. You probably have stories within your family and within your friend network. If you got to know your neighbors well enough, you would find people like this in your neighborhood. Who have just, they were one time in and now they're like, nah, I don't need that anymore. I don't need Christ anymore. And there's a whole thing I could say right here and it would take probably a few days to say it. But we have, while this is going on, let's talk about it this way, two rails that our culture has been on. While this has been going on, a, what you might call the secularization of North America. And part of that secularization where we're saying, we don't need Jesus, we don't need absolute truth, we don't need the testimony of Scripture, we don't need uh, the church, we don't, we don't need these institutions. It, your best life is found in really figuring out who you are. And the culture tells you that you only can find out who you are disconnected from other people. There's no institution that can tell you who you are. You, you shouldn't live, live within the bounds of a Christian tradition or even a denominational tradition. You shouldn't even live in the bounds with, with, within which you would find your family. That your best self is somehow realized and fulfilled and actualized apart from other people. And what we have done to ourselves became fully displayed amidst COVID. That we had so disjointed ourselves from true relationship and true community. You can go read the stats. Go read the articles in the biggest newspapers in America that are telling you how to overcome loneliness. Well, no wonder you, you don't need Jesus. You don't need God. You don't need the church. You don't need social traditions. You don't need your family. You don't need anyone telling you anything about yourself. And then all of a sudden it is left solely up to you to figure out who you are, what you're for in this world. And you have people who are already mentally and spiritually isolated placed into a pot of isolation. No wonder loneliness is going off the charts. No wonder suicide is growing. We are, we've done it to ourselves. And unless the Lord brings true awakening and revival to our land, it will grow worse. As you continue to believe, some of you, that the truth that is absolutely true is only what you feel to be true today. No wonder what creation may tell you. No wonder what science may tell you. No wonder what the Bible tells you. You believe that somehow deep within the reservoir of your own consciousness, you have something better and truer to say than anyone ever has ever said before. And so you can identify however you want to identify. Now, that obviously has connotations today 
that I am implying, but it also means other things. That when you believe that you are the standard, that you're the standard of truth, that you're the standard of joy, that you alone determine what is true and right and good and beautiful, we are creating cultural destruction. And when we abandon, when we abandon the unifying principle that God has made every one of us, And if God has made every one of us, that means that He is the unity amid our diversity. That the thing that makes us alike is that we both bear the image of God. He is the connection with the disconnection. He is the logos, the the logical force, the, the designing principle behind all that there is. That we can see the beautiful diversity, not just in humanity, but but in creation. And yet all of it ties together and exists within its own cycles. Just consider how plants grow. Consider photosynthesis or the, the water cycle. And you have diversity and unity all within one bundle sustaining life. The only way that you can maintain diversity and unity is, by a, is through the means of a God who is himself diverse and one. He is the triune God. He is the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He is, it is only the triune God that can account for creation and life as it is. Only the triune God can account for who you are. Only in Him can you find your identity and your purpose. Only in Him can you actualize who you're designed to be. You cannot determine it, dear one. And if you continue to try to do so by yourself, it is a road to self-satisfying destruction. And not just for you, but for your neighbors, for your family, and for your community. When all of the pieces of the... Just consider a two-by-four. I'm not a builder, nor am I a son of a builder. But consider a two-by-four. That's meant to be... What? What is a two by four in a house? A stud? Right. I want to make a stud finder joke, right? But I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to do it. Uh, but, But does a stud function as a upholding unit in a house if all of the grains of wood begin to splinter apart? No. All of the grains have to, they have to cohere and be together in order for them to function as they ought to. In the same way, if you splinter off thinking that you're going to go be a pterodactyl for life, then or whatever you want to choose to be, and you put that, you magnify that times 8 billion people, then you're looking at the perforated end, like a ball of yarn, forgive the analogies that are just coming to my head, like a, like a piece of yarn that you cut and you don't singe it, it just ends up this giant thing that you can't fit through a needle. In the same way, if we, if we pursue ourselves, we pursue our own realizations, our own actualizations, without surrendering, submitting to the God who has made us, you are yielding destruction for yourself and for each other. And we could take the time, this is why I said it would take me a few days, 
We could take the time and we could look at this in history and see how both it has a manifestation in radical individualism where you believe that you are all only authenticated as a human when you would do as you please. But it also has a destructive manifestation in radical collectivism. Just consider, continue the old, I mean, consider the old USSR or modern day China collectivist communities where it destroys the individual and it's only the unity of principle that matters. Both of them destroy people. And I'm not just talking about political ideologies. I'm talking about how people approach each other in community. You have to have the one and the many. You have to have the unity and the diversity. And we need those things not just to beautify the world, not just to fulfill the commandments that the God has given us, but we need that to survive. You need the one and the many. As Paul closes up this first chapter, he reminds Timothy, as he said, do not be ashamed. Remember the awesome power of God in the gospel. He's saved us and called us with a holy calling. He's given us that before the foundations of the earth. It's amazing. He's abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. I am not ashamed. You ought not to be ashamed. Let me give you two examples. I'm going to give you a negative example and a positive example. And how these things come together, I've kind of issued two ideas to you. The idea of shame eroding confidence in the gospel. When it becomes shameful to hold that Jesus Christ is the Son of God who is the Savior of the world. And that is simultaneously an invitation and an exclusive truth. When we say Jesus Christ is the Savior of the world, we mean He is the Savior of anyone and everyone who will call out to Him in faith. We also mean that in Jesus Christ is the Savior of the world, He is the only Savior of the world. And it is in Him that our radical, destructive, self-pursuit comes to an end and we in all of our beautiful parts are redeemed and brought into one. The unity and the diversity. And we cannot be ashamed of that. That God is summing up all things. Paul tells us elsewhere. Summing up all things in Christ. All things find the right and proper posture, position, and end in Jesus. Fill in the blank. All things. Banks. Bugs. Barbecues. All things are summed up and ought to lead us to Jesus. And it's shame on this point. Now I'm hoping now to drive home shame a little bit closer to you. It's shame that Jesus is the Lord of all. And all things find their right and proper light in Him. All things. From Alpha Centauri to the soles of your feet. 
He's Lord of all, and all things find their right and proper light in Him. That He is the unifying principle to your entire life, Christian. If He's, listen, if He's the Lord of your life, that means that He is the unifying principle of your whole entire life. Just cook on it for a second. Think about the most boring part of your life or the most unpleasant part of your life. Like, I won't, you can, there's only, there's only some multiple choice, but there's only two, two possibilities. Um, when the, in our, when in our, ha- in our house, and it's, and it's usually something akin to the, have you ever been to the zoo and uh, there's the, the island apes, you know? It's like they're just going nuts all the time. There's water around them, so they can't quite get out. That's what our house is like, usually, during daylight time, sometimes at nighttime time. Uh, but all of a sudden, your, your olfactory senses will pop, you know, and you begin to smell something. And then there's an immediate, uh, sometimes negotiation, sometimes it's hostile, sometimes it's nice, about who is going to deal with the issue of that is stinkifying the house. And, it's, and if it's traveling around, you have a better sense of who it is, right? One of them is more mobile than the other. And one of, never mind, I won't. Cap on the analogy. Cap's on it, okay? I can't put a cap on the smell, but I'm putting a cap on it right now. Uh, but even this, okay? Even, even stuff like that comes under the lordship of Jesus, and it is shame on this point that has destroyed the American church. You're thinking, how do how diapers? Because we have wanted, we have wanted a Jesus who has claim over us on this day, during this hour, but no other time. We have discipled people into believing that following Jesus is only about this day at this time. And so we have wanted not a unifying principle over all of life, but we have wanted a compartmentalized God, little g, over our Sunday mornings. And we've wanted Him to leave the rest of our weeks alone. And what that has created is a bunch of cultural, nominal Christians. And they begin to weigh out the shame principle, saying, if I'm going to be about this, I, I want that stuff more. I want my Monday through Saturday, where I am my own God, I so believe, rather than my Sunday. Here is the shame As someone said, Jesus is Lord of all or he's not Lord at all. That's not original with me. I just can't remember who said it. And for the early Christians, that was the fundamental confession. Not Jesus is my homeboy. Not Jesus is my savior. Not Jesus is the one who I get to run through the daisy fields under rainbows and leprechauns or whatever else American Christianity turns Jesus into, especially around St. Patrick's Day. It was Jesus is Lord. And if Jesus is Lord, no one else is Lord. 
Caesar's not Lord. Self is not Lord. Family's not Lord. Job's not Lord. Recreation's not Lord. Travel ball's not Lord. Dance isn't Lord. There is one Lord. And either he's your Lord all the way, or you don't have business claiming him. And I don't mean that too, I mean that confrontationally. Obviously, that's confrontational. But I understand we're all growing. We, we, we either want that to be true in all of our life, or we want Jesus to sit in his corner until we point at him and say, come on out. And he will not have it. And so for these who had gone with Paul, Phygelus and Hermogenes, they are the negative example. They were going with Paul in Asia. Asia is modern-day Turkey. Ephesus is the capital. This is where Timothy is ministering. And they might have been in Rome with Paul. And at some point they said, not just them, but all who were in Asia. Now, he doesn't mean literally everyone, because there's still some Christians left in Asia, in, in Turkey, like Timothy's there at least. But the vast majority of the people who are all, in all of these churches... The city in Antioch and Lystra and Derby go through the book of Acts and we see all of these churches in Asia Minor. And he's saying, many of them, they have turned away from me. They were going along with me and they've turned away. They've abandoned course. Among whom, you know these guys, Timothy. Remember them? You remember Phygelus? You remember Hermogenes? There's some of those. They left me. And right here, to leave Paul is to leave Christ. To leave the apostle is to leave the Lord who has sent the apostle. And I might have mentioned it last week, but um, Alistair Begg, I mentioned the funny story about Alistair Begg, but uh, he, he says in the same sermon um, that not only were people leaving Paul then, but people continue to leave Paul today. There is such a drive to drive this wedge between Jesus and the Gospels and the Apostle Paul who wrote a vast majority of what was left. Have you ever had that conversation? Well, Jesus never says this. Well, the Apostle Paul says this. But we have to acknowledge that Jesus didn't say it. Well, if, the, if we're going to be faithful to what we believe, then we say, no, God said it all. He said this over here through his prophet, his son, Jesus, who is our prophet, priest, and king. Over here, he sent it through the one that Jesus sent, appointed and sent, the apostle Paul, or Peter, or James, or Jude, whoever. And so they abandon. They leave Paul in his hour of need. This is not Paul triumphant. This is Paul suffering. And the shame was too much to bear. We don't know anything else about these dudes. Guys, men, sorry. We don't know anything else. They don't show up anywhere else. Onesiphorus shows up at the end of the chapter. I mean, end of the book. But we don't know anything else about Phygelus and Hermogenes. But they abandoned the course. And you can just imagine, right? It's just like those who begin to follow Jesus expecting one thing. And it's not that thing. 
It's much nittier, grittier, and more difficult. And they leave. I don't know how anybody follows the Apostle Paul for very long and thinks that it's, it's going to be sunshine and rainbows. But at this point, he is, he is in the dungeon. He is imprisoned. He is awaiting death. These guys left, Timothy. They left. Don't be like them. Don't give up the faith. Don't fail to run the race. Endure the shame. May the Lord, verse 16, may the Lord grant mercy to the household of Onesiphorus, for he often refreshed me. Paul prays for Onesiphorus' family. Because as we look at the end of the book, I mean, end of the book, this book, 2 Timothy, Onesiphorus is from Ephesus. He's from Ephesus. And yet he's in Rome ministering to Paul. So he's praying for his family, not as, uh, as some Roman Catholics would want to use this passage to say Onesiphorus is dead, and they're actually praying for, in, for to and for the dead and all sorts of stuff. That's not what's happening here. He's separated from his family. So on one hand, may the Lord give mercy to his family. And then later on, he says, may he find mercy from the Lord on that day. But Onesiphorus demonstrates unashamedness for Christ. Now, what do you think of when you think I'm unashamed for Jesus? You probably imagine some like triumphalistic, like I'm on the corner of a street. I'm on some great, great big pulpit, unashamed. I'm witnessing to everybody. I'm wearing the, all the unashamed t-shirts and the hats and all the jazz that 1990s Jacob did. I'm unashamed. How does Onesiphorus show that he's unashamed? What does he do? Where does he go? He goes to Rome to help out Paul. Where's Paul? He's in the the bottom of the bottom of the bottom of prison. And notice, Lord grant mercy to Onesiphorus. And you can get the sense, like, as the Lord granted mercy, as Onesiphorus granted mercy to Paul, may the Lord grant mercy to Onesiphorus. Blessed are merciful. Be merciful as your Father in heaven is merciful. Look after the needy and those who are broken, those who are imprisoned, the writer of Hebrews tells us. May the Lord grant mercy to him, for he often refreshed me, and he was not ashamed of my chains. But when he arrived in Rome, he searched for me earnestly. Some translations say diligently there. So this is a different sort of imprisonment than we find Paul in at the end of the book of Acts. Go read the end of the book of Acts. Like Paul's renting a house. He's hosting dinner parties. Not really, but he's, in, he's, he's having his friends over. He's, people are coming and going. He's almost like a, he's under house arrest. That imprisonment is of a different character than this imprisonment. Paul was not easy to find. And for Onesiphorus to serve him, it required vulnerable mercy. He had to expose himself to the Roman authorities. He had to dig down into the very dungeon of the worst prison in Rome. 
to find the apostle. This was not fly-by-night mercy. This was not drive-by mercy. This was plant your feet, expose yourself, press into the brokenness, search out the needy type of mercy. Because Onesiphorus believed, I believe, that Jesus is Lord. And Jesus is Lord both from the top of the Roman Empire down to the belly of its dungeons. And if Jesus is Lord in the belly of the dungeons, then God's people ought to be going there in Christ's name. He often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. When he arrived in Rome, he searched for me earnestly and found me. May the Lord grant him to find, verse 18, to find mercy from the Lord on that day. And you know well all the service he rendered in Ephesus. So we see that Onesiphorus isn't just serving Paul because Paul's awesome. I would imagine, like, if you were to say, hey, Jacob, who are, who are the top five people you could hang out with that are, that are already dead, but somehow, by some weird zombie movie logic, you could hang out with them again? Who, oh, that's, sorry, that's stupid. But um, who would you want to see? I think the Apostle Paul would be on my top five. Let me, let me hear him pre- Let me be there in, in Athens. Let, him be there, let me be there in Lystra. Not get stoned, but see him get stoned. You know, let let me see these things. Let me be around Paul. But Onesiphorus isn't just there to serve the prominent, but he's also serving back in Ephesus. We see that that he's imbibed a spirit of service. And when you when you have been served by Jesus, you unashamedly serve in Jesus's name. When you have been served by Jesus, you unashamedly serve in his name. Onesiphorus is willing to serve in Ephesus. He's willing to serve in Rome. They're not that close, by the way. It took some time between the two to get between the two. He'll serve on the streets of Ephesus. He'll serve in the dungeon of Rome. He will serve because Christ has served him. And dear one, if you are a partaker in the gospel today, Christ has served you. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. This was the scandal of John chapter 13 when he takes up the towel and he begins to wash the disciples' feet. And Peter's like, no way. If you're going to wash me, wash the whole thing. No, Jesus is like, I'm just going to get after the dirtiest part today. And for you, that's what Jesus wants, by the way. He's going to start with the dirtiest thing you got. The dirtiest nook, cranny of your heart. We just pulled up the carpets and we got hardwoods down and I was looking at the carpet in our bedroom and all the places where the vacuum cleaner couldn't go and like how much dust had accumulated there. You have those places in your life that you are ashamed of. Things in your past that you are ashamed of. Things in your present that you are ashamed of. And nobody knows them. If if, Maybe the people you do, you would say, I wish they didn't know what they know. But dear one, Jesus sees that. He sees the skeleton in the closet. Or maybe some of y'all got a whole graveyard in there. I don't know. But he sees it. And he says, I'm still coming after you. That's what I want to deal with first. I want to deal with your stinky feet. 
I want to deal with your brokenness and your shame. I want to deal with your fear and your baggage and your burdens. And I love you. I want that. And this is the extension of the gospel. That God demonstrates his love for us that while we were yet sinners, while we were sunk in the muck, in the mire, while we were rebels against God, our sins were scarlet. We had no moral purity. We were altogether unrighteous. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Come, let us reason together. Though your sins are as scarlet, they shall be whiter, as, be as white as snow. You can be washed and clean. God can come into that mess that you've been stacking up in your closet. He can come into that mess in Christ in the Spirit and bring you wholeness. That does not disqualify you from Jesus' work. Please hear this. Everybody in here has sinned. Everybody in here has fallen short of the glory of God. Everybody in here needs what Jesus offers. Just some of us have gotten honest about it and said, Christ, come in. Here's my junk. It's not all sorted out yet, y'all. We're not in glory. I still need Christ. I still need what he accomplished on the cross. I still need a spirit in my life. And so do you. And when you have been, been served by the King of glory, not just in that He's washed your feet, but He died to make your soul clean. When you've been washed in the blood of Jesus, you're willing to bear the shame to serve the people around you. Even if the culture doesn't like it, and usually it's when the church doesn't like it. That's another sermon. Onesiphorus was unashamed of Paul's chains. Would we be unashamed if we have been served in Christ, if we have been redeemed by the blood of Christ, would we be unashamed to serve the people in chains? It could be literally literal prison ministry. That's on the radar. But people who are shackled in sin and death all around us. There are people in, sh- in chains today. In the chains of addiction. There are children that are bound up in broken homes and seem like unwinnable situations. What can we do? How do we step into that need? What do we do when one of our own is in dire need? We step in and serve. Not to gain anything, but we serve because we've been served. And this is the heart of Onesiphorus. And it's the very heart of the gospel. To serve the broken. To serve the needy. Remember, was it Psalm 12? Because the poor are plundered, because the needy groan, I will now arise, says the Lord. I will place him in the safety for which he longs. Where are the needy? Where are the poor being plundered? Where are the hapless and the helpless? There may God's people be too. Because Christ has served us in our mess and our muck. We can serve other people with all the junk they got going on. And that's messy. I know that. I've seen that. But who is it that needs to be served in Jesus' name? Who is it that needs you to come alongside them?
to love them even through their brokenness. But for some of you, you need to back up a step. Because you might be thinking of all these other people. But maybe the thing you need to do today is say, Jesus, come and serve me through your good news. Forgive me of my sins. Make my conscience clear and clean. Some of you need to come to Christ. Open up the closet door. Say, Lord, I've made a mess of things. And dear one, that's exactly where he wants to be. So let him in. Invite him in today. It's not going to be like this. It's not like the cat in the hat. Remember that part where he comes in with a big machine, fixes everything in like 30 seconds? No, Jesus wants to come and live there with you. He wants to come and live in your heart through the Spirit. And begin to gently move things around. Clean up the messes. And show you where he's better than all these things. And where he loves you even still. Jesus is the Savior of the world. But you must be served by the Savior as he's Lord of all. And in fact, in a moment, we'll be serving by ordaining two new deacons. And I'll talk about this more in a minute. But as I close, that word in verse 18, may the Lord grant him to find mercy from the Lord on that day. And you well know all the service. He rendered at Ephesus. That's the word that we get the word deacon from. The root of that verb. Diakoneo. But you can hear the deacon in there. And so we ordain deacons as servants of the church. They serve Christ by serving you. They serve Christ by helping us order things in the church and make sure things are taken care of and that above all people are taken care of. They serve. So in a minute, not right now, guys, I'm going to invite our two guys up, but I'm going to, I'm going to pray. And then if I could have just a couple, um, a couple guys get chairs after I pray. So whoever wants to do that, help me do that. But let me pray for us. Father in heaven, we thank you that you have come near to us and that you endured the shame of the cross, the humiliation because of the joy set before you. Lord, would you capture our hearts that you are Lord of all, that we would acknowledge you in all things. That we would bend the knee in all areas of our lives. Consecrate every area of our life to you. That you would be Lord there. That we would be unashamed of Jesus in every area of our life, in every spot of our lives, in every relationship, that we would be unashamed of Jesus. And willingly in those places, in those relationships, Step in with a heart of service. Where there is a need, would your people step in with healing hands and going feet? But for some, would you tear down their resistance this morning? 
Would you conquer all of their excuses for why they don't need to come? Why they don't need to submit? Why they don't need to call out to you to be saved? Would you tear all, take away all of their excuses, O Lord, that they, they might be laid bare today knowing, right now knowing, that they need Jesus and that Jesus is being offered to them. And all they must do is ask him. Ask him. Would you give them grace to respond? We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.